Hi, welcome back. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and this is John W. Welch here to talk about our favorite book in the world, the Book of Mormon. We're part of the Come Follow Me team with Scripture Central, and you can get all this information on either um, audio or visual, or there's handouts. You'll find the John W. Welch notes. We can attach them here, or you can dive into all these books that we'll give you. We hope to be able to strengthen your testimony and understanding of this fabulous book. We're starting today in 1 Nephi chapters 6 through 10. We are bridging Lehi and his family leaving and now introducing the family of Ishmael and the vision of the Tree of Life. In chapter 6, right from the start, Nephi introduces his purpose in writing. Back in the beginning, in chapter 1, he talks about, I'm going to write to show you the tender mercies. But here in chapter 6, verse 4, it reads, The fullness of mine intent is that I may persuade men to come unto God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and be saved. And as we mentioned last week, that's coming unto Christ. And so we begin with this beautiful bridge and it's time to go get the women because Lehi is reading and gets another revelation that we need to raise up seed and your sons do not have their wives with them. And I think the wives were arranged. I think that's probably true as well, that uh, it was normal in that day for uh, that millennium men, the fathers <laughs> to uh, to provide for and to arrange for marriages and Often cousin marriages were thought to be uh, uh, the, the, the closest and the, uh, the most likely to succeed, I guess. Uh, but at least uh, the families were well known. They knew each other. I think when they go to get Ishmael, Ishmael and Lehi probably had spent a lot of time together. But I think it's significant that his name is Ishmael and that Ishmael is from Abraham's first wife, Hagar. And we deal with a person who knows how to travel. His family's ready to go. It appears like these marriages had already been arranged and that they were already sensitive to the spirit. So your thought that they knew um, Lehi fits in very well because Lehi's a prophet. His friends and family members probably knew. And there's outside sources that suggest that he was also from the tribe of Joseph, that he was an Ephraimite. But that's not in the text like we have and, and one other thing that would probably lead us to expect that these were um, prearranged marriages is that we know that Lehi was a man of considerable substance. He had wealth, he had animals, he had a business. And property outside of Jerusalem, property inside of Jerusalem. Exactly. And so he is thinking of his posterity. And Lehi would always want to be sure that uh, that was properly uh, distributed and passed on, uh -huh. but for good purposes. And especially a man like Lehi would want to be sure that his his sons uh, would be able to have righteous children. That was uh, a great desire of a righteous man's heart. And it sounds like Ishmael has an enormous family. You know, Lehi is up to this point only mentioned the four sons, but Ishmael has sons who are already married. And then he has at least five daughters, um, and it sounds like there's even a daughter for Zorm, his eldest. And, you know, marriages were arranged much younger um, than the actual marriage taking place. So it's fascinating to me that they hadn't already married off some of these. But everything is in the Lord's timing, 
Nephi calls himself exceedingly young. Well, what's young in that day and age? You know, I know what young is by the time of the New Testament. You're, you're an adult at 12 and a half in one day. You know, you're, you're not necessarily a breadwinner. You know, you have to move in with your parents, but you can be married very, very young by 12. Well, and especially the life expectancy in the ancient yes. world was yes. much lower. It was unusual for a person to live to be uh, well, 70 or 80 years it's, old. It's unusual for them to live past age 10. You know, we're losing half of the population there in their go. infancy. Um, so these marriages are arranged and they want to make sure that they can procreate while they're still alive. Yeah. But this beautiful trip back up to Jerusalem to say, please join us. The Lord has directed this. We need to have these marriages consummated and, and families begun. Um speaks so highly that the whole family was willing to come again. We don't believe that God courses us. And chapter seven is filled with examples that some people didn't have the same opinion by the time they got halfway down. And we have another fisticuff again amongst the brothers. And and, um, and Nephi has to stand up for what's right. Yeah, and of course, they are betrothed, but they're not yet married. And so, you know, the, the sons who with Laman and Lemuel, object to what Nephi is doing. They will, you know, who's in charge here? Because Lehi wasn't there. So you can understand how there could have easily been controversy about what we're supposed to do and, and how this is to happen. And if you're getting married, why not stay in the lap of luxury where you've got land and property? They already know how meager it is down in their two and a half week, whatever the journey is, this 200 miles plus. That's right. But in the end, of course, Nephi knows that we've been commanded to do this. Yeah. We will follow the instructions of the Lord. We will keep his commandments. Nephi, I think, puts this little detail into the record to let us know that it's not going to be easy, um, but it will be worth it. And it turns out indeed to be richly worth it for them. So let's end chapter seven with the last verse. They came down to the tent. And I mentioned that before. We constantly have reference to this. I think it's a tabernacle. I think this is a sacred place where marriages are conducted, where scriptures are read, where visions are received. They came down to the tent of our father, I and my brethren, all the house of Ishmael. When we came down to the tent, this is another evidence that it's an ancient text. Regardless of the, of the altitude, if you are going away from your Jerusalem, you always go down. Whether you're going north, south, east, west, 500 meters above sea level, whatever. It's always down if you're away from the holy city. And then it says, once they get to the tent of their father, they did give thanks unto the Lord their God, and he did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings unto him. Well, what it says here is that they offer sacrifices of thanks. There are different kinds of uh, sacrifices that were made in the temple. Some of them were atonement sacrifices for forgiveness of sin, but a thanksgiving offering was not necessarily a uh, blood offering. The, uh, the reason something would be burned at uh, an offering in the temple was to show that it was a total sacrifice. No one is benefiting from this. Maybe the food or whatever it was that they put on the altar or the stones that they uh, set up, whatever it was, they, they aren't going to offer that as a sacrifice and then somebody gets to eat it or use it. They're burning it so that it goes up in smoke, literally up to God. 
It's a total sacrifice without any self-interest. And that's the way our sacrifices are made today, too. When you pay your tithing, uh, it goes into a general fund where the, the president of the church controls the distribution of tithing sacred consecrated funds. And they, they are used then as the Lord would have. So I think that we, we think of the, uh, you know, the idea of sacrifice here as uh, maybe blood offerings, but I don't think that was the case. See, they're, they're it's so just, thankful. It's a thanks offering. Yeah. It's a thanksgiving offering. Although I do want to go back to the idea of the priesthood because I was fascinated by the idea that um, at the time when Joseph Smith is doing the translating, priesthood was sort of a bad word. You know, anything that had to do with Catholicism or Judaism was not appreciated in 19th century early Americana, especially during the Second Great Awakening. You know, they called it popish. And yet Joseph begins being introduced to the priesthood at Moroni's first visit. You know, I will send you more information on the priesthood. And then we start the Book of Mormon. And of course, um, we know that they are from the tribe of Joseph, but the holy order of God and sacrifices are mentioned all over the place before Christ comes in third Nephi. So I decided to count them up. And I said, let's not just look for the word priesthood. Let's look for uh, some of the words that mean a priesthood, that they're going to have either sacrifices or ordinances or a bestowal of the priesthood or examples that the priesthood is being used. And it's, it saturates the text. It does. And the first place that they would have encountered that, if they I certainly knew it before, but now that they are in a situation where they don't have Levites or yes. the high priest yes. to do this, they didn't have to read very far in the book of Genesis to come to Genesis chapter 14, which talks about Melchizedek. Being and a Abraham king and a priest. Is giving his tithes to the and king and the priest. And this is before Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tribes of Israel. So priesthood did exist. Yeah, yeah. Right in their text. And they're reading it. And, and also we're taught by the prophet Joseph in one of his later sermons in Nauvoo that all the prophets received the higher order of the priesthood and their equivalent of the endowment, and then taught from that perspective. So I am believing that, no, Lehi did not hold the Aaronic priesthood, but he held the higher order. But they do not refer to it as Melchizedek very often in these ancient texts. They refer to it as the higher order or God's power. And we see this idea of God's power, which I believe all of God's power is priesthood power, whether we're seeing it in the manifestations of the gifts of the spirit or whatever, it's all God's power. We see it here, starting in first Nephi with the idea that he is authorized as the patriarch out in front of his tabernacle to be offering thanksgiving offerings to the Lord. And what that gives us an example of is their awareness of the patriarchal order of the priesthood, which is husband and wife sealed. And that's where this priesthood, which... Uh, You're talking about the higher order of the priesthood. Yes. So they didn't necessarily have that in the Aaronic, but they were totally aware of the husband and wife sealed. I, and that's why I think it's so important that they have these marriages, that they have to have it because he's so concerned about their posterity. The word order of the priesthood usually talks about organizing and ordering, arranging the organization of the church. But priesthood and sacrifices go back to Adam oh, yes. and Eve. We're told that in the Pro Great Price, Book of Moses. And uh, Abel, 
yeah. half offering sacrifices yeah. too. Yeah. So finding those references so early in the book of Genesis on the brass plates would have given uh, Lehi an understanding of his role as leading this people yeah. as prophet, priest, and king. And I think as Lehi is writing this down 30 years later, he is also following the pattern of the children of Israel and in their times when they also did the same thing. So we see a lot of continuity between the Exodus cycle of the Israelites and the Nephites, Lehites. And one tiny detail that you uh, look at when you get to the end of Exodus chapter 20, okay, it does talk about how the altar should be made as an altar of stones. And it has to be stones without being cut, right? Like field stones or something. For the uh, the original concept, and especially this is when the uh, Israelites are in the wilderness, they would make a, an altar of a pile of stones uh -huh. and they should not be cut with a chisel at all. Yeah, it has to be a field stone. And what... We have here in the Book of Mormon is that Lehi does make an altar of stones. So uh, you have the plural. Yeah. That's not that he's going to make a stone altar or a single one. No, but it's again this continuity. It is an ancient text. Joseph had no idea. There is evidence on every page of this great book. There you go. But now it's time to turn to chapter eight with the beautiful story of Lehi's vision of the tree of life. And what does chapter eight begin with? It begins by saying here they are out in the wilderness and they gather seeds. I don't know who else they might be gathering them from. Maybe they're seeing caravan ears. Apparently when they the leave, yeah. when they left Jerusalem, maybe they get out in a hurry. They take a few months supply, but they've got to get more. And I think that's sort of the pattern of the Bedouin. You, you establish yourself in a place long enough to grow some seeds and to establish some uh, continuity. Then once all the grass is gone, you've got to move on so your camels can g g eat something else. And does the word seeds just refer to wheat and corn? And they didn't have corn, but wheat and barley. The beauty of Lehi's record. You know, we've got this, the continuity of Lehi's daughters coming right here. So we're talking about posterity of seeds. And now he starts in chapter eight, the idea that we need to gather seeds. And then he has the vision of the tree of life, which is all about the seed again. And the tree of life, ultimately you partake of the fruit, the white fruit of the tree of life, and it will grow up in you to become a tree of life. So you have this idea of the seed of truth and the seed of, of power and the seed of life. Let's just go back to the Garden of Eden. The tree of life is in the Garden of Eden. It is the tree that will allow immortality, right? But doesn't the Lord command angels to guard it so that no one can partake of it until they can partake of it without their sins? So when he's talking about this vision of the tree of life, is he going back like to the presence of God, back to the paradisiacal state of the earth, the Garden of Eden? Yeah, once Adam and Eve had partaken and were then transgressors, uh, if they had partaken and lived forever in their sins, that would have been contrary to the plan of God. So now Lehi is seeing this in a vision, but that's the same tree we're talking about. Okay. So we're talking about eternal life and the fruit of that tree. Now, of course, that tree is symbolic and it comes to represent the love of God and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And this symbolic tree which will produce fruit that is white above all. This is an unusual fruit. Yes. 
It's a kind of glowing like the spirit that is pure. And out of that purity and glowing power, you will then have eternal life that's given to you. Jack, this idea of it being white fruit, um, I didn't take, I just read it and accepted that, okay, it's white fruit. We don't have white fruit. It's white fruit. But I was listening to Margaret Barker and other people speak on other ancient texts that refer to a white fruit that is very unusual and it's God's gift. So this is not just here in Lehi. This is in other ancient texts where we have this unique white fruit that's full of light, that's full of love, that represents God's immense love for us. And there were throughout the ancient world and even today, cultures all over the world have their tree that is especially important to them. In fact, I've read some of this book on the tree of life from Eden to eternity. There is so much to back up the historicity, the validity, the archaeological evidence of this of this story. It's just amazing. And this book is one of those. And one thing I like about this point, that the tree of life is a pervasive cultural uh, concept, is that the gospel is for everyone. It is to all people. I didn't even know in Egypt, the the symbol of the lotus flower was a tree of life. You know, all these different cultures. And the date palm in Babylon is a tree of life. There's one in Japan and there's one in Latin America. Their tree of life pop up everywhere. A lot of continuity, which means I think they had a similar source. You can ask people, as I have done from all over the Pacific Rim. Oh, what is the tree of life? Do you have one in your culture? Uh-huh. And what do they say? And people from Papua New Guinea, yeah, we have a tree, the coconut tree in Samoa. They all depend so much on the tree, especially the coconut tree in the islands. And that became their image of the tree of life. God is as good to them spiritually and eternally as this tree is to them physically and now. I want to go back to the rod. In chapter 8, verse 19, it says, I beheld a rod of iron, and it extended along the bank of the river, and it led to the tree by which I stood. Now, iron has been around for a long time by now, but it's still not very long. You know, they didn't have a lot of long iron. So I think this was interesting in his vision that he said, this was a, a rod that extended along the bank, that it's not what he's used to. You know, although we do know that there are um, steel bows, that metallurgy has come to quite a distance. In fact, I'm I'm sure you remember, um, you and I went to a museum on metallurgy in 600 BC in France. Um, the How much metal they had found in Gaul, the nation of Gaul at that time. So we know that there's a lot of metal in the time of Nephi and Lehi, but this rod we're told um, later on in Nephi's explanation what it represents, the, the, the words of God. But I also think that it's fascinating that he is given images from his DNA that then expand. And that's just how the Lord reveals things to us. He, he gives us something that we can understand, and then we are to grow from it. And I think that's interesting that the word of God extends all the way to the banks of the filthy water. Yes. It's not just over in paradise somewhere. No, it goes, it is along, and the water is the wickedness of, yeah. And by clinging to the word of God. We can get through. It will bring you to the tree of life. 
And when you get to the tree of life, you know, some people look around and they get attracted by the uh, the taunting and the pride of the world. And they see people over in the great and spacious building having, having a great time and they fall away. But there's something that people do who don't fall away. And it says particularly when they get to the tree, they fall down. They fall in humility. They fall in thankfulness. And Lehi had made a big point about the sacrifice of thankfulness, which opened up this dream. I think what he's telling us here is that gratitude is probably the most important virtue we can cultivate to help us. And President Nelson, as a physician, has talked about what being grateful will actually do. Physically, yeah. To you. Yeah. There's, there's a chemical oh, reaction yeah, that yeah. goes no, on. I, as a nurse, I can see it. Hope and, and gratitude. But before you leave the spacious building, back in chapter 8, verse 26, this is interesting. Not only does it represent the pride of the world, but he's organized this in beautiful parallels, as Nephi often does. And there's a small little chiasm in chapter 8 where you reverse the order of things. And he starts out with them pressing forward in verse 24 and they're clinging to the rod. I love his verbs tense. But then it says the center point here is the f- concern about you may let go because of the taunting of other people. And then he repeats it again and he goes back and it's not a complete parallel. Um, but he warns them that to come unto Christ, to partake of Christ's love, you have got to keep holding on to that rod, that word of God, whether it's the scriptures. And to me, part of pressing forward, holding onto the rod says, it is your scripture study that will lead you to the love of God. That it is hearing the conference reports. It's the it, revelation that you receive. It's the, the words of forgiveness that come after our sincere repentance. It's those words that help us feel God's love. I love that. And, and, and you, you know, it just, you talk about holding onto the rod and holding the book. Uh, what does it mean to cling to? You're in a tempest. You're in a storm. You're holding on as the winds and the waves are wrapping against you. I, I, That's right. I, you know, I see Peter coming out of the water as the Lord grasped him. He's clinging to the Lord. Yeah, you, you don't just hold it gently. Uh, you do respectfully. But when you cling to something, you desperately hold on. When Christ attacks Satan, he quotes scripture. And we can attack the satanic influences in our life by knowing and clinging to the word of God. Jack, can you go into a little more detail about just one of those texts? I've mentioned a few of them. You've mentioned a few. But can you go into detail on the one that you published in BYU Studies years ago? Um, We'll have a link to it here on on our video. But This is, again, such evidence that not only is the Book of Mormon a book of antiquity, but that God's plan is pervasive. Well, this, you're talking about the narrative of Zosimus. Yeah, when I was in law school at at Duke, I would sneak over to the uh, divinity school. To study theology or something, huh? Well, because I'd become friends with a professor there named James Charlesworth. Oh, I know that name. His work as a young professor in those days, in the early 70s, was pulling together all of the apocryphal and pseudepigraphic works, Jewish and early Christian, 
and compiling them. They're, they were eventually published in the 1980s. And one of these texts is called The Narrative of Zosima. So in a seminar that I sat in on, uh, he would have us working on drafts and just reading the text and trying to understand what uh, this particular document is all about. And one of the questions he was always asking was, is this text a Jewish text or is it a Christian text? That would help situate the meaning of words in those texts. So he began this one day by introducing this narrative of Zosimus. What's the date on this text? What do they think it comes from? What's the handwriting or the... We have the narrative of Zosimus in many languages. It's in Ethiopic. It's in Old Church Slavonic. It's in Greek. The earliest ones are very early, but uh, not before the time of Christ. Okay. But the story was widespread. Okay. You know, as you pick it up and read it, you wonder, well, is this coming down through Christian hands or Jewish hands? Mm-hmm. Actually... There wasn't that much difference originally between some forms of Judaism and some forms of Christianity. Of course not. They come from the same source. (laughs) Uh, As he gave us this, he said, well, let me just tell you a little bit about the story. So as you go read it for your homework, you can kind of figure it out. And as I've written it up here, let me just summarize this. According to the narrative of Zosimus, a righteous man named Zosimus, dwelling in a cave in a desert prays to the Lord and obtains spiritual passage to a land of blessedness. In order to arrive at this land of promise, Zosimus must wander in the wilderness without knowing where he is being led. He is pushed to the point of exhaustion, but attains his destination by constant prayer and divine intervention. Zosimus at length arrives at the bank of an unfathomable river of water, covered by an impenetrable cloud of darkness. Interesting. Mm, You're beginning to (laughs) catch the picture. And grabbing on to one of the branches of the tree, a rod that comes out of the mist, Zosimus is then transported in the spirit across the uh, water where he sits beneath this tree that the branch was connected with. And it was a beautiful tree and he was eating its fruit and life-sustaining water was flowing out of its roots. Well, that even ties to Isaiah as well. Zosimus was then met by an angel. Good. We like those. Who was going to take him along and asks him what is wanted. He gets a guide just like Lehi did. And Nephi will also say, the angel says to him, what is wanted? You know, this is so interesting because do you remember um, Joseph Smith's dad was a visionary man? Joseph Smith Sr. had seven divine visions where they were all leading toward the restoration, but he never, he never could open the chest and get it. He'd always wake up and things. But I think his second dream had parallels to not only Zost. Say it again, Zos- Zosimus. Not only to Zosimus, but also to Lehi and Nephi's dream. But I see that this is not necessarily Zosimus. It's not necessarily talking about Lehi. I think the same vision was given multiple times in different places because when exactly. Joseph Sr. saw it, it's a rope. It's not a rod of iron. And I just feel like, no, this is, there's enough details to say God is giving this message on how do we feel God's love in our life? How do we feel Christ love. Well, 
it's the tree of life. It's the atonement of Jesus Christ. We we take his word and we are then, but this vision, just like the throne theophany we were talking about last week, that's in so many texts from Adam on down. And now we have similarities in this ancient text. Well, what did James Charles will say when you said, or did you say it? Well, what he he stopped as, you know, he was telling all of this and you know, I'm getting pretty excited. <laughs> I was just sitting next, just a couple seats down on his right, and he looked over at me, and he said, "Jack, what what do you see here that we don't see?" Okay. And I said, "Well, there, and there's more to the story that even gets more like Lehi's vision." But I just said, "We have in the Book of Mormon a story that's fairly similar to this." And Professor Charlesworth later said. When you were talking, I thought you were levitating. <laughs> oh. He said, I was so excited. Oh, yeah. He then assigned all the students to go and write a paper on the narrative of Zosimus and what they made of it personally. Oh. So you were able to really study it in parallel with your text open. So the next week, I came to class with a list of, and just a parallel, Zosimus, Lehi. Lehi. And put the two, and they line up point after point. And that's what this article goes through and shows how closely these two texts work, down to the point that the uh, angelic escort then shows Zosimus uh, a vision and tells him of the future of the house of Israel. Zosimus was praying. He says, I'm here wanting to know the way of the life of blessedness, and the angel will then talk to him about uh, eternal life and uh, the principles that he needs to know. And he then says, oh, and by the way, uh, let me also show you here, because there are some other people around this tree that the angel then brings up, and Zosimus is approached by them, and they say, well, who are you, and what are you doing here? because nobody's supposed to know that we're over here. And Zosimus says, I was brought by the Spirit of the Lord. And they said, oh, and where did you come from? He said, I came from Jerusalem. He said, oh, okay, then we can talk to you. And in fact, they then bring out their records that they have written, and they say, we too have come from Jerusalem. And they tell the story of how they got there, and their history, it says, they kept engraved upon soft stone plates. That's in the narrative Jack, of Zosimus. This is the most amazing evidence. So I have heard people suggest, oh, Joseph Smith is just telling the story from his dad's dreams that he heard as a child. But that has nothing to do with this. Is with much this. more detailed. The and, Zosimus story uh, then goes on to say how this group explained that they had been led by their father escaped the destruction of Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah and how the nation had survived as scattered Israel. Wow. They were allowed to occupy this paradise only because of their righteousness. And if they didn't remain righteousness, they, righteous, they would lose it. Their religion was based upon prayer, chastity, and receiving knowledge of the wickedness of the outside world by revelation. Now, this is a text that was not known in the Western world until the 1880s. That's the first time it was translated into English. Wow. So it's, uh, but it is following an ancient pattern 
Yes, there were many prophets, many people led by God. And in fact, he tells us that in 3 Nephi, you know, I will go visit other tribes. The world is filled with people who had the truth at one time. What a powerful connection. And when I came back that next week and showed and told everyone, here's Lehi, here's this, uh, we had quite a discussion about that. The class then uh, uh, had a discussion about, well, is the the book uh, Jewish or is it Christian? Uh And what about the Book of Mormon? Is it Jewish or is it Christian? (laughs) And we got into some very interesting wide-angled discussions. It's both. Uh, just before the class was dismissed, uh, Professor Charlesworth actually said, well, as you are thinking about where the narrative of Zosimus came from, you might think, where does the Book of Mormon come from? Good for the As a graduate student challenge. Yeah. And there was a little kicking this around. The The solution that the uh, that seemed to carry the day was that Joseph Smith must have been a reincarnated Jewish monk. <laughs> I'll stick with the Moroni story. Thank you. <laughs> One of the students came up to me afterwards and I said, you know, I find it easier to believe Joseph Smith's Moroni okay, story okay, than that. Okay, you said the same thing. But he was the one who had always been really kind of snide. And, you know, anytime any Book of Mormon or LDS kind of comment came up, he'd kind of, you know, Give you a dismiss it and yeah. things like that. He was the only one who came up and said, I'd like a copy of the Book of Mormon. Oh, wow. Nephi gives a little interim here in chapter 9 and says, hey, uh, that most of this is written on, it, on my other plates, my dad's plates that I've um, written earlier. But now I'm going to just give you a brief summary and then I want to talk more about mine. But in this little interim chapter 9, again, he's at the tent of his father. But he says that he makes in verse 4, upon other plates should be engraven an account of the reign of the kings and the wars. And then he says in verse five, the Lord hath commanded me to make these plates for a wise purpose in him, which purpose I know not. But the Lord knoweth all things from the beginning. This is so amazing to me. The Lord is, his omniscience is not just generally, it is in the details of our lives. And this beautiful acknowledgement, this is again at the end of verse 6. Behold, he hath all power unto the fulfilling of the words, and thus it is amen. And the fact that Nephi was willing to go through all the effort of finding more ore and beating it out and purifying it and dipping it into their acidic, you know, however they're doing their refining, so much work to rewrite this stuff. And aren't we grateful for the small plates? You know, the, after the loss of the 116 pages, this was prophesied right here. Well, Lynn, here in chapter nine, we do find this expression that Nephi has to sort of justify, why am I going to all the trouble of writing now this this smaller version or a different version? It's kind of presumptuous of, of him to say, I'm now going to write the book of Nephi to take the place of the book of Lehi. Uh, Lehi was the father. And now, Nephi has his own people. They have separated. By the time he's writing this down. So there may be some reason for just telling the story from Nephi's perspective, because he's now the leader of that segment of Lehi's posterity. He says he doesn't know why he has to rewrite him. 
That's right. He doesn't have a specific purpose in mind, but I think the Lord is inspiring him to say that you need to be more uh, focused on the commandments and the importance of keeping the commandments, of bidding people to come, of inviting people. Uh, Nephi's text, we don't know what Lehi's text looked like, but it does seem that Nephi has a much more uh, uh, abundant, fuller version of what he knows about the future of his posterity than what Lehi had spoken of. He says in verse 4, Wherefore, these plates are for the more part of the ministry. It's, it's where we come unto Christ. He's already stated his purpose is to come unto Christ or to come to God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here he says, these plates are going to focus on that. That's right. And so presumably Lehi's ha- record had focused more on the, the, the details, the history. He says the wars and the history and the condition. Yeah. Okay, do you want to move ahead to chapter 10? Chapter 10 is, uh, again... A... Le- Nephi is summarizing now his dad's vision and conversation um, with his family. Interestingly, we will get Nephi's full vision... Next week. ...in chapters 11 to 14. And knowing that, he can now summarize the various points that Lehi had also known about. Without going into great detail. Yeah. That's chapter 10. And he, uh, he lists the prophecies that Lehi had received about leaving Jerusalem, why we have to go. It says 600 years from that time, the Messiah is going to come, the so they're Messiah good at record-keeping. Come. I love the fact that he knows about John the Baptist. That's verse 6, 7, and 8. That's right. And it says that Jesus would be baptized by John the Baptist at a place called Bethabara, which means Beth, the house of crossing. Well, they don't say Jesus or John, but they do say Bethabara. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is very interesting because that's where Joshua came over. Exactly. That the uh, the crossing of Joshua in, and his people Just into the, the promised sea, land on the River Jordan is known as that place of crossing. And there was one other person who crossed there. Elijah. Elijah. <laughs> that's the chariot of fire. That's right. As he yeah. crossed and then Elisha goes into the back into Canaan and Elijah goes up into heaven. So. Lehi is also saying, I recognize that place and it's important enough in both the history of Israel and in the life of Elijah the prophet to recognize that Jesus's baptism going down into the water and coming out in a new land a new life, a and new world. he who will bring us to the promised land. Happens eternally. in that same place. And it happens to be the lowest place on the planet. You know, it's also yeah. uh, down, down, down below sea level. And do you think Lehi could have related to these journeys? He has taken his people. Right in similar through locations. Through that area. Yeah. Yeah. And they have left and they will go to a new land of promise. Of course, they're not just going across the River Jordan. They're going across the ocean. But that crossing, that place of crossing, is a a place symbolic of how complete our baptismal covenantal change is as we go from one side of the world 
to a land or a place of promise, we are promised through baptism and through the gifts and power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Ghost, we can also be led to our Heavenly Father's home and back to our heavenly paradise. And isn't it interesting, in Nephi's account, he goes from the baptism of the Messiah in verses 9 and 10, he talks about Bethabara, and then he goes down in verse 17 to talk about the Holy Ghost, just how you combined it there. I love this. He says his dad has this vision, and he spake by the power of the Holy Ghost, and then he skips down and he says, I, Nephi, was desirous that I might see and know these things by the power of the Holy Ghost. So I was fascinated to see the Spirit connected with power. So I just did a little number crunching. Mm. That is a phenomenal connection. In restored scripture, whenever the Spirit is mentioned, power is often accompanied with it. And I found that the Spirit was mentioned many, many, many more times. The idea that God's power is directed through His Spirit was something that Nephi desired. And that will take us to next week. But before we start Nephi's vision next week, I would just like to testify that I believe that the power of the Holy Ghost can witness to all of us that Jesus is the Christ and that the Book of Mormon is a source to come unto Christ. And it was written for that very purpose. And if we prayerfully seek his spirit, the spirit of God can be accompanied by power in our lives. And as we've been directed not only to read the scriptures, but to seek for a witness of them and to seek for the power of the Holy Ghost in our life through repentance and obedience, I believe the Book of Mormon can help us do that. I think that's why we have it. I think it's that iron rod that can take us to feel of God's love. And as long as we know of God's love, everything else can work out. Thank you, Lynn. That was really beautiful. There are so many takeaways that we can take out of this lesson. What are your favorite takeaways? What do you see speaking to you in the words or in the actions and all these details that you can take and put into practice in your life. The Spirit is power, and the Spirit will move us. But without our action, without doing, all of that power is, is kind of like power going through an electric wire, but without ever connecting to the appliance, you might say. No electricity. We got to have the... Ele- <laughs> we are the appliance, meaning we apply the power. I love it. And love so... It. We apply these scriptures in our lives as we keep the commandments. And keep doesn't mean just putting them into a box and locking the box with a key. Keep means to obey and to preserve and to always keep them bright in our memory. There are lots of ways that we remember our covenants and remember him always. But with all of this in mind, I have learned a lot going back through these chapters, as I always do. Every time you go back and Lynn, bouncing ideas back and forth with you is a real pleasure. And I've learned things with this, and I suppose everyone, I hope everyone has. Uh, We always can improve. 
in our lives in so many ways, and I testify that the gospel is a living truth. It's not just words on a page. I know that when I live the gospel, when I keep the commandments, when I treasure them, the Lord more than rewards me with what I need and far beyond. I testify that Jesus is the Christ and that he has brought forth this record for this time in the history of the world uh, that we might all come unto him. And I testify of that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 